Hi, everyone. Welcome to Being Patient Brain Talks. I'm Deborah Kahn, founder of Being Patient. We're going to talk about a study that absolutely floored me. Um, it was first run on 60 Minutes, and I watched the segment. It's a study of people who are 90 and older, and um, it's a longer-term study. Um, these, these people have been studied for a number of years, looking at their brains, understanding um, everything from longevity to dementia. So I'm really pleased to have with us one of the co-leads of that study, Dr. Claudia Kawas. She joins us from UC Irvine. Claudia, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Deborah. I'm really honored to be here. Okay, I, I wanna just start, let's put it all into context. Um, we know we're all living longer. Um, how long are we living for? And you know what, 90 plus, is that gonna be like the new 50? I, I'd say 90 plus is definite. I have a slide I show all the time in which it says 95 is the new 65. And that was done quite a, a decade, almost two decades ago. So I think you're right, it is gonna keep going on down. No, I mean, as you, as you saw, I, I don't think how old you get matters, it's how vibrant and and active you're able to be that matters to you the most. And a lot of people are gonna be doing it, yes. So tell us a little bit about the 90 plus study, which has been now going on, is it six or seven years that you've? Oh, actually it's about 18 years. Oh, sorry, beg your pardon. Yeah. Um, it's been 18 years, so it's been almost two decades where you have been studying 90 plus. So tell us a little bit about how you designed this study um, and, and what really you're looking for. Well, I mean, at this point, we've enrolled um, about 2,000 people over the age of 90. And the original design was there were 14,000 people um, living in, in what was then called Leisure World in Laguna Woods in the early 1980s. And investigators from the University of Southern California sent um, a 14-page questionnaire to every single person who was living there. It's a retirement community. And they got 14,000 of them back. And that's pretty astonishing. But in those um, reports um, from people were, uh, they answered questions about their lifestyle, especially. And they answered questions about whether or not they took vitamin E. And they answered questions about the women, whether they took estrogen and how much exercise they got. And so originally what we said is if you were one of those 14,000 people on January 1st, 2003, um, and you were still alive and over the age of 90, we were going to find you. So we went to 37 states to find the first 1,600 people in the study. Um, now, more recently, we're taking local volunteers. And in fact, uh, probably for maybe only another year or so, um, if there are people in Orange County area who are interested, um, Orange County, California, we're delighted to hear from you. Um, because uh, we are taking now local people and we're trying to study what makes you successfully age. So what's the quality? I mean, okay, so now you have thousands of people in this study. Um, you've been following some of these people for a significant portion of time. Um, what's the quality of life like in general at 90 plus? Well, I mean, the, it really spans the whole range. Um, unfortunately, variability is the hallmark of aging. So what you have are people at one end of the spectrum who really are quite impaired in, in whatever ways, whether it be 
ability to walk or um, think. Um, and at the other end of the spectrum, you have people who are still just remarkable, um, flying all over and visiting and driving and doing artwork and um, volunteering and all sorts of things and everybody in between. And I, I think, you know, we all want to be at, we know which end of the spectrum we want to be at. So the real question is how to move all of us over to the good end. Well, and we hear so much recent in recent research in recent years about lifestyle and how, although lifestyle can't cure a neurodegenerative disease, there's a lot of credible science really believing that you can kick the can down the road, right? You can really make your brain healthier. Is, is that what you're seeing as you look at the 90 plusers? Is it just the ones who are more active, who keep their brains engaged? Are they the ones who tend to be the ones who are, are cognitively living healthier lives? Well, I mean, that's exactly what the research is showing. You know, it's, it's um, uh, like you said, how did they get there? So when we look, for example, and compare, does it matter whether or not you took vitamin E? Does it matter how long you lived or does it matter how good your thinking was? If you took vitamin E, did you do better? And, and the answer is no. But when we look um, for those who exercised um, and about how much they exercised, what, did that matter how long you lived? And did that matter how good your thinking was? And did that matter whether or not you fell in your 90s was even related to the amount of exercise that these people reported doing in 1981? So, uh, I mean, there's no question these factors matter. And I would put forth they matter more than any drug that's ever been approved because none have been approved, right? So these these effects, uh, they're not to be minimized. And uh, I think they have to do primarily with a healthy brain, being able to withstand the onslaughts of whatever, you know, comes its way um, better than a not so healthy brain. You had mentioned earlier when you were talking about certain things that you had asked um, the community of people, um, uh, estrogen made me perk up a bit because there's so there, there's a lot of research going into how hormones impact our brain health. And we know that, you know, two thirds of Alzheimer's cases are women. Um, it, and at first it was just thought that it's because women live longer, but now I've been told by many scientists that that's actually not the case. Um, and what science is really delving into is the fluctuation of estrogen. Like when we, as we age and go through menopause, there are certain susceptibilities of a drop in estrogen that puts your brain at risk. Can you shed any light on, you know, onto that um, for us? I mean, are we at the stage now where like a lot of the people, the women in your study, 90 plus, did they take estrogen? Um, do we know that yet? <laughs> So estrogen is such a complex story and I'm mostly laughing because I was thinking of all the papers that I've written about estrogen and how some of them say probably or appear to say the opposite of what another paper I wrote said. And um, estrogen has been uh, so hard to understand and tangled apart. In the 90 plus study, actually, probably the very first paper we even published, uh, so now I'm talking about almost 20 years ago, right? Happened to be um, that women who took estrogen in the 90 plus study in 1980s, which was generally their perimenopausal period, right? Um, lived longer than women who did not take estrogen in the 1980s. And that was looking at all 14,000 people, well, all the women in that 14,000 people, which would have been more around uh, probably uh, eight, 
8,000, um, seven or 8,000 maybe. So in the, in these women, I mean, does that mean estrogen made them live longer? Well, I, I can't tell that in this kind of study. All I can tell is that the women who happened to take estrogen were the ones that lived longer. And while estrogen could cause that, but it also could be other stuff related to estrogen um, or other stuff not related to estrogen. I mean, um, all, all it's, it's a real complex story. As you know, many studies have suggested benefits for estrogen in terms of both longevity and cognition. There's a whole horde of scientists who are looking at estrogenic type compounds um, and trying to understand their differential effects on the brain. I mean, I think one thing that was very um, interesting is all the women in the 90 plus study, virtually the overwhelming majority of them had taken what we call conjugated equine estrogens, which is the premarin. And That's um, a horse, uh, coming from a horse, right? It's the, exactly. Right. And there's like 32 different estrogenic compounds mixed in there. And, you know, it's hard to know which, which one. I mean, we think that estradiol, one of them is the most brain related one. There's receptors in the brain, for example, for for estradiol, but but we don't quite understand all the all the effects on the hormones on all the different receptors in the in the brain. But these women who took Premarin were the ones that appeared to do better. And yet now Premarin is not in the standard of care. So you know, women if they do take estrogens, they don't generally take them unopposed, meaning they also have progesterone added, which has also brain effects and and it's it's complicated. Yeah, a lot more study has to go into this, obviously. Yeah. We don't really have the answer. What really amazed me about this study is the fact that you some of your findings are contrary to anything we've been led to believe about dementia. So for example, you had um, people in this study who had amazing cognition and lived over 100 years old, um, yet you open their brains up after they passed away and it was filled with beta amyloid plaque and, and tau tangles and vice versa. You had people who were cognitively in a state of dementia, uh, yet after the autopsy, you didn't see a single sign of plaques in the brain. So explain that to me, because how could that be possible? Well, I think, you know, we've oversimplified it uh, a bit and we hardly ever do autopsies, unfortunately. And so most of the time we don't really get a chance to find out what's in, in the brain. Um, the real, the plaques that we see in Alzheimer's disease, um, up until recently, we had no way of knowing how long they were in your head. All we knew when, was what they looked like when you died, right? And usually you divide, die with severe dementia and we find the plaques and tangles and we say it's Alzheimer's. But what I think we didn't know until relatively recently is that first of all, people tend to have these plaques in their head for 10 or more years probably before they have the first real signs of memory loss. So one possibility when you see this in a normal person is that, well, if they'd lived longer, they might've developed dementia. 
And because that's not an unreasonable thought, in fact, those are the very individuals right now that are in most all of the prevention trials um, for Alzheimer's disease that have to do with amyloid in particular. Um, but on the other hand, another possibility might be that their body just doesn't mind having it there um, or the toxic effects of it aren't for some reason affecting them. Um, it's hard to know which one of those when you only get one chance, you know, to look and, and it's a death. But I think now we're realizing that there do appear to be some people, particularly among the oldest old, who look resilient. That is, they look like they can have all these things in their head and they're still fine. And it's not just Alzheimer's disease, but it might be signs of, uh, we usually associate with Parkinson's like Lewy bodies or TDP, um, which is a, a protein that we've started realizing is related to a lot of different dementias. Um, it so might be even strokes. And yet somehow they look really good. Okay, I want to I want to talk about TDP in a little bit, but first I want to talk about this this resiliency. Are we talking about perhaps it could be a genetic resiliency? Some people possess certain genetics that actually protect their brain from going into. Yeah, or what else? It also could be an environmental resiliency. Like, what does that look like, though? Well, it can look like any number of forms, but let's start with the most basic. For example, education appears to be related to resiliency. So maybe it's, you know, early life development and education and effects that, you know, happen then that carry forward, maybe with behaviors also associated with education, whatever they might be. Um, so I think one of the most common things people have found, in fact, is that education does appear to be related to resiliency. Um, some people think it might be also just that when you get educated, you can hide the signs for longer. That's called detection bias, but um, education is, is related. But, you know, I think that's the other thing we're always trying to simplify. We're always trying to say, oh, it's a gene or, oh, it's this, or it's the air you breathe or, you know, the aluminum in your pots or whatever it might be. And, and I think that's, Part of our problem has been trying to find that one magic bullet. What we need to recognize is that dementia for the most part is just a, a kind of brain health. And that throughout life, just like your skin takes a lot of insults from UV light and cuts and scrapes and, you know, I mean, and starts accumulating them, you know, you, you wanna maintain brain health. And a lot of these things really matter, not just the genes you're born with, but also what happens through your life. So are you saying that maybe dementia can also be just a symptom of old age? It's not necessarily, I mean, obviously there's the early onset folks where that's more of a disease state, right? But yeah. um, could it just be that as we get older, our memories just can't hold up and that's what we're kind of calling Alzheimer's. Should it be a neurodegenerative disease or is it a symptom of aging? Oh my God. That has been the question that I've heard ever since the day I started my first day of fellowship. And I think that's so hard. Where do you draw the line is always what people say. And uh, I, I mean, what I think is that memory, like everything else we do, you know, and muscle strength, everything, it absolutely changes with age. And I don't know any 90 year old who thinks their memory is better now than it was when they were 30. I just, you know, um, so in general, we kind of tend to think of that change as certain kinds of, of um, 
less capacity. Um, but on the other hand, I, I mean, at, at, at the question is, at what point do you say it's not normal? It's like, at what point does it um, stop being normal when you can't walk or run as fast? I mean, and and I think it has to do with functional abilities and feeling that you can do the things you need to do. So all of us have word finding or more forgetfulness and things like that. We notice it with age for sure. But the real question is when it's severe enough that you really can't do what you want to do, you can't recognize your family, all those kinds of things, then I, I, to me, that's a disease. I mean, it's, it's definitely a disease. And that's also why, you know, when you look under the microscope, you know, I think another thing that always surprises people is almost 25% of our 90-year-olds come to autopsy with no amyloid. So my attitude is, if it really is just they didn't live long enough, let's just make it so everybody doesn't get it and, you know, makes it age 95 without getting it. And then we, I mean, it'll be in, incredible. So but how do you explain that? Like, I, you know, I, I remember watching the 60 Minutes and there was, I think it was a, the woman who um, was going, she was, she obviously, she was showing very clear signs of memory loss and dementia, yet she didn't have a single, you couldn't find any plaque in her brain. So what explains that? Well, that was, I think, the gentleman on the oh, show. Sorry, I mixed him up, yeah. And he had absolutely looked classic. He was in the first show six years before with clear dementia at that point. And, um, and then he was the one that we got the surprise. Um, and he had no Alzheimer's plaque. And that's because I think... Um, the most likely explanation in his case was something that is now being called late. Um, late is a, a tangle of words, um, limbic predominant, age-related, TDP 43, encephalopathy is what it stands for. But the bottom line is it's people who look very, very, very similar to Alzheimer's disease. They're almost always, that's the diagnosis they receive during life. They tend to have memory problems. Um, they tend to progress less uh, quickly. So they have a, a slower rate of decline and, and lower levels of impairment in, in at least some cases. Um, and that's what's being called late. Um, and that's what he had. He had no Alzheimer's pathology, but he did have TDP 43. And so I think that is what was explaining his dementia. Um, it's interesting that we often find both of those things now. We didn't realize until recently, I mean, TDP is only in the last 20 years, and we now realize that TDP happens in a lot of disorders, starting with ALS, where it was first identified, frontotemporal dementias associated with, with it, and um, many Alzheimer's patients also have it. So you can have Alzheimer's alone, you can have TDP alone, or you can have them both together. Okay, tell me, let's, t let's go down to the very basics. What exactly is TDP? Well, it's an abnormal protein. It's a hyperphosphorylated protein, once again, that's associated with neurodegeneration, essentially. So then that way it makes it very similar to like an amyloid or plaque or a tau tangle which are the abnormal proteins we use to identify Alzheimer's disease. So TDP is phosphorylated abnormally in these other disorders. So it's something that when you, when something, when the cascading process begins, TDP is like one point 
where you know perhaps you can reach the tipping point and 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 go into dementia so kind of like the plaques but not the plaques is that right um no not really i think of it a little differently i mean one of the things is we really don't understand what tbp is doing and especially this whole i mean these are a lot of different diseases so i mean one is it just the the end stage for example if you've had alzheimer's for a long time or you know how early it is and all that that's really um an an important area for us to figure out but um i think you know it 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 identifies basically another disease process. So for example, when we're talking about Alzheimer's disease, we say it's there if they have amyloid or tau. If we're talking about um, Parkinson's, we talk about the alpha-synuclein protein, which is what's in Lewy bodies. And I think a lot of people think that this entity late is actually another thing along the same lines where you might have TDP as the associated abnormality and maybe stopping that phosphorylation will help and maybe it won't, you know, like the amyloid story is being worked on, but that's one of the possibilities. I think that same problem though we have now with this is the one we've had for Alzheimer's disease through my entire career until recently, which was, you know, now I can get an idea of if you have an amyloid plaque or a tau plaque in your head by getting a PET scan or doing a spinal tap or most recently some blood assays. But I can't do any of those things yet for TDP, although people are working on it. I think that would help a lot to study it more. Because um, we don't even know when TDP presents itself, really. No. Yeah, we have so no we born idea. with it, or maybe it comes later. We have no idea. Well, I mean, in the normal form, just like amyloid, you're born with it and you have it in your cells and, and all that kind of stuff. What we don't know is, is when, it, when does it become abnormal? Mm -hmm. um, and you're right. And you know, what, what role it's playing in the process? Is it at the beginning or the end even? Um, it looks when it appears in Alzheimer's disease to be kind of near the end. Um, it's also associated with something called hippocampal sclerosis, the scarring of the hippocampus. And the people who with Alzheimer's disease who have TDP also uh, tend to be the longest duration patients. So patients who've had dementia for the longest are more likely to have TDP with their Alzheimer's. I mean, you know, it's... Uh, I wish this was simple, but I guess if it were, then we would have a cure and we are still working really hard on it. But you know, I, I think there's some optimism that needs to be said here. I mean, and, and it goes back to our the earlier part of our, our discussion sort of. So it turns out that there have been a number of studies that have suggested now that over the last tw 20 years, the age specific risk of dementia has gone down. And by that, I mean, you know, you're, if you were an 80 year old 20 years ago, um, your likelihood of having dementia at the end of the year or five years or whatever was much higher, it turns out, than it is if you're an 80 year old now. And that has to do with like we were talking about the new, you know, 65 sort of. But the real interesting part about that is what made it go down, right? Because the only thing I know for sure is none of our drug trials were successful. There is no drug that made it go down. And so it's other things that are happening, some of which I think have to do with lifestyle, 
some of which I think have to do with risk factor management, particularly things like hypertension um, and, and cholesterol. Um, I, I think the fact that it's gone down should be very encouraging to us because it should tell us that there's, there's factors there that we maybe even already are manipulating and there's probably more. I mean, I've heard scientists talk about the cure for Alzheimer's is more like an HIV cure, right? It's like you don't actually get cured, but what you do is you treat a lot of different things that are risk factors, mm -hmm. and then you lower your risk um, and hopefully never go into um, neurodegeneration. So mm -hmm. possibly could be um, on the horizon. And if that plays to what you're thinking, which is, you know, what you're saying, which is, you know, maybe we're just living healthier. We, we, we deal with blood pressure better. We deal with vascular problems better than we used to. Yeah. You know, are all related to brain health. I um, there's a question that's come in, and I think it's um, particularly important today as we are all living through this pan pandemic. A lot of people in our community have expressed how hard the isolation is for them, the social isolation um, leading to depression, which we know is bad for our brains. I'm curious um, about insights into um, the 90 plus crowd. Are they are the ones that were living healthier? Were they really socially engaged? How much did social factors play into this? Well, actually, um, just a few months ago now, we published one of our papers um, looking at just a very simple measure of sort of outlook in 1981 and um, related to mortality. And it um, outlook matters, you know. I think having a positive attitude has um, been associated in a lot of studies, not just um, ours, you know, with good outcomes and doing better. Um, how to get that positive attitude now is another story, but um, I, socialization, I'm very worried after this pandemic. Um, I think that on all of us, at all ages, I think we are going to see long lasting effects, not ones we can't get over, but I, I think there's been more impact of this on us than we probably realize on a on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, it's been a long year and a very isolating one and very isolating for our 90 year olds. I mean, I, I think it was so telling about a month ago when we temporarily reopened the clinic uh, so that they could come in for in-person visits. We've been calling them all along, phone calls on a regular basis just for checking in or delivering toilet paper or whatever. Um, but uh, out of the 15, first 15 people we called, uh, the first day, 14 immediately were scheduled and came in. Mm -hmm. It was, I think they, we miss seeing them and they miss seeing us. And I think especially, you know, there are vulnerable groups so people isolate them even more than they might already be isolated. And um, I think it's, it's, always minimized in our head. It doesn't sound real scientific or it's not a pill, but engaging with other people is really probably contributes more to brain health than, than we generally admit. And so. What is it? Do we know? Is it, is it enhancing neuroplasticity? Do we know why um, social engagement is good for our brains? Well, I mean, if I gave you an answer, it would be, simplifying what I think is one of the more complex things again. Um, I think that there are definitely effects on neurogenesis. I think that there are all kinds of um, also transmitter and hormonal things that 
the change. I mean, talking to somebody actually uses a lot of the brain, you know, um, you're on a moment by moment interacting and um, uh, engaged. And it's, you know, it, it's, it's a very important kind of brain activity, I think. And I think that the effects are probably not just one transmitter or one neuron or, uh, you know, one effect on the neurons or anything, but they just commit overall to brain health. Um, one of the things I thought was very interesting, mm -hmm. so when we looked at um, exercise and non-exercise activities in terms of mortality, so 15 minutes a day of exercise helped you live longer, 30 minutes was better, uh, 45 was the best. After that, if you did three hours or whatever, it was like you had done 45 minutes uh, a day. When we did the same study with regards to hours spent engaging in any kind of activity, um, put a whole bunch of stuff in there together, right? We took that every additional hour was associated with longer life out to a maximum of eight hours. So, you know, the, the effects on mortality as well as other parameters of health of engaging with other people is, is a big deal. Wow. And, and you can understand why, like when, when um, couples, one spouse passes away, usually the other one goes relatively quickly to them. You know, and that could explain it as well. Yeah. We're, we're getting a, a question in um, about um, the TDP. Um, and this question is asking, you know, could TDP, because it presents like Alzheimer's, but not in a normal way, could it be seen in early onset Alzheimer's and just missed because um, they're younger, you know, and maybe people aren't looking for it? Well, I mean, uh, you do have to look for it. I mean, you know, um, you have to put special stains, just like you have to look for the amyloid or, or the tau. And so, yeah, it could easily be missed. Um, I mean, there's a growing literature now and people are starting to look at it. For example, in my 90 plus brains, we didn't have TDP for the first 12 years, 15 years of the autopsy series, right? And so we had to go back and do um, all of them. So, if you know, it, it, it easily is, it could be missed. Um, in general, though, it when it occurs with one of these diseases, for example, the frontotemporal dementias, that's a young form of dementia that'll have TDP, or the ALS patients who have TDP. But when I'm the form of dementia that I was talking about earlier, that one appears to happen primarily after the age of 80. Is that late? You're talking about late dementia. Late, yeah. yeah. Um, that one is... is uh, more common the older you get. And although we saw some cases in the 60s and 70s, you know, it grew quite a bit more rapidly in the 80s and 90s, where it probably accounts for um, in our 90-year-old cohort, for example, or some other cohorts that have been reporting it, a big, big ones from Rush, for example. In general, people think that it seems to account for about 20% of the late life dementia, late life dementia, um, and in these same studies, usually Alzheimer's is more around fifty percent, forty-eight, fifty percent. So it's about half as much as Alzheimer's, at least um, above the age of eighty. So, I mean, you know, one of the problems that people have is diagnosis. Um, and, you know, what you're talking about is kind of a whole new dimension to dementia. <laughs> but, however, 
does it really matter? I mean, do, are the symptoms exactly the same? Should we know whether or not it's a late dementia versus, you know, full-blown Alzheimer's? Like at the, at the point we are in today in research, is it important to distinguish this? I mean, I can see why it is for, for the search for a cure, but in just in terms of people's living and, you know, lifestyle. Oh. It's, I mean, it's like any other thing. It's this, how important it is or isn't depends on what you're researching. So I think, I mean, when people come to my clinic, to me, what's important is to do my best to make them as good as possible, to get worse as slowly as possible, to improve in ways, whatever ways are possible. And at least right now, all forms of dementia mostly use the same strategy. So, you know, um, I give out a lot of antidepressants, for example, um, to help with mood and sleep and agitation or other drugs, you know, to control, you know, other symptoms that, that might help the person feel better. I mean, one of the things that's interesting is how often with all these more supportive so-called treatments, people's cognition also improves and their behavior improves and they feel better. And, you know, that's right now where, where unfortunately it all is. I mean, in the end, we want to prevent um, or cure or, or something, but right now what we want to do is take care of them. And that doesn't vary that much by all of these kind of more refined things that, but in terms of research, I think lots of times it does matter a, a lot. Um, and the researchers can and should figure that out. Um, one of the things, for example, patients want to know the most is, you know, uh, am I going to get worse? And how quickly am I going to get worse, for example? And some of the things that um, probably control that have to do with what's in your brain that we don't know about. But until I have a specific way of fixing that particular problem, whether it be Alzheimer's or late or uh, strokes or, or whatever, then mostly I, what I need to do is make you feel better. Yeah, so. absolutely. So, um, Claudia, just to kind of sum this up is, I mean, the study is almost 20 years now. Mm -hmm. um, we've talked about certain findings and insights. But when you're kind of if you had to give me an overall, like what we've learned and why it's significant right now. Um, I mean, I know you're, you're continuing and there's still a lot more to learn, but what's the aha moment in all of this? Oh, I, I think, I think the studying people in this age group of, first of all, it represents a huge public health problem that I know it's an oxymoron, but the older I get, the more interested I am in it. And, um, and it's, uh, really opened our eyes to several things, including the fact that all dementia is not Alzheimer's disease. And we need to put some attention into looking at all of those other things because they also affect younger people, even though they've been even more ignored in the younger people as Alzheimer's disease is far and away the most, you know, uh, common one. I think also it's told us that there are a lot of things we don't know because at age 90, still about a quarter of the brains with dementia do not appear to have an obvious cause. Um, 
not that many years ago, I said 50%. So the reason why it went from 50 to 25 has to do in large measure with TDP and our appreciation that microscopic infarcts, which we thought before don't matter, um, actually are accounting for a significant number of those. And that's like ter little terrors in your brain. Is that right? The well, you know, we call them micro infarcts because we're implying that they're tiny um, so tiny you can't see them except without a mi with a microscope, but they're supposed to be mini strokes, we think. But the risk factors for them are not related to the risk factors for any other kind of stroke. So I, I'm not sure what they are. What I do know, though, is that when you get a whole lot of them in your brain, it affects your thinking. Mm -hmm. And so it's another area that hopefully will be getting a lot more attention because it's potentially uh, an area that we might be able to treat right now or prevent right now. Um, so the, the 90 year olds are the ones who have allowed us to detect previously unknown pathologies sometimes or under recognized or studied pathologies and you know focus on on them because they it, they cause dementia at all ages. The 90 year olds at age 100 the risk of developing dementia is 40 percent per year. Mm. So um, if you want to you know, have a study where you watch a lot of people transition, um, you know, nothing makes that happen more than age. So they're at high risk, but they also are the highest uh, levels of so-called resilience, where they appear to have pathology in their head and being fine. They've just been amazing to study and they give us everything. I don't know how they do it. And so let's, I mean, I'm assuming you didn't enroll everyone once they were 90 or did you? Is it one of the requirements you have to be 90 or above or do you take them before? I mean, considering you're studying 20 years, do they have to be 90 when they enter? Yeah. They have to be 90. Yeah, um, the, uh, the, you don't get enrolled until your 90th birthday, actually. Okay. We do have other studies at UCI, many other studies, actually, that enroll, you know, much younger individuals, um, you know, 60 and 70 year olds, especially, um, and 80 year olds. You know, we have an Alzheimer's disease research center that takes a lot of those. And we have most of them, in fact, are people who are normal, by the way, and allow us to do all kinds of research and stuff. But for the 90 plus study, no, you can't even, I mean, I, I, we don't even let you in the month before your um, 90th birthday. You have to be 90. Okay. So I have a few decades to go before I qualify, but how do people, let's say as someone's watching this and they have a parent who's, you know, grandparent, um, where, how do they find out how to enroll and where are you recruiting? Is it all over the country or, I mean, I know things have slowed down because of COVID, but tell us, yeah. how do they find so, out? Um, anybody who has access to a website, 90study.org is our website. You'll find a lot of information there, including our phone number and, uh, an email address and you can just give us a call or email and we'll be happy to answer all your questions and tell you what, if any options there are. Um, when we first started the study, as I said, it was very hard. The first 1600 people, you could not volunteer. You had to be on that list of 14,000. So a lot of people, for for example, after the first 60 minutes show wanted to volunteer and we couldn't let anyone in then because we were only taking people who were in the original cohort. Right now we're taking volunteers. We do ask that they live locally because in addition to us having to see them on a regular basis, um, we also have neuroimaging and other things that we need them to be relatively you know, nearby within a hundred miles or so. So anyone in the Orange County, LA, San Diego sort of area that usually works out. 
um, you can give us a call. Okay. We'll we'll post the link um, in in the. Oh, that'd be great. And if you could also put the phone number. Yes, excellent. So, um, Claudia, um, thank you so much for your time. And don't forget to come back and tell us every time you have an aha moment. Um, <laughs> let us know. We're we're eagerly awaiting the research. But what a great study! And um, you know, and of course, to the ninety plusers who participate, it's amazing. So, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for having me. So if um, you missed any of this interview or you want to um, see it again or share it, uh, we will be posting it on beingpatient.com. Um, if you want to know more about these talks, please sign up for our newsletter. Uh, we'll let you know what talks are coming up, or you can also look under talks on our website to see uh, the list of talks coming up. Thanks so much for watching, and we'll see you next time.